This OFI podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The Car Guys Report Informed Automotive is up next, but first, take a listen to this other fine OPI show. I'm Howard Sudbury, and I co-host the Back to You podcast with my longtime friend, Steve Basterville. He's the smart one, and our show is on the move. New episodes will now be released on Thursdays, and I have breaking news. The Car Guys Report Informed Automotive with Mark Vernon and Lou Costable is on the move, too. New episodes of this great podcast will be released on Tuesdays. So check out Mark and Lou with the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive on Tuesdays, and Back to You on Thursdays. Both are Opi Show productions on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opi Show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive. Thanks so much for taking us along for the ride. Certainly glad to have you with us. I'm Mark Vernon. We're giving Lou Costable a couple of uh, days off here on the Car Guys Report. But uh, in Lou's place, we have our man in the field who has decided to come in from this uh, beautiful spring weather we've been having lately and joining us in the studio via the phone because we have been uh, on lockdown. So we're doing a lot of our uh, shows on the phone. We'd like to welcome back Roger Rexrode to the Car Guys Report. Roger, this, I believe, is your third appearance on the program. We got together way back uh, last year, uh, you and I, and then we did our uh, big uh, two-part C8 episode with you and me and Lou. And today you're joining us with a topic. You know, I'm going to be be totally... Um, honest with you here uh lou or uh roger i know that you're always as a man in the field they're always like texting me and giving me updates and giving me feedback on the shows and 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 doing interesting commentary so to speak which i appreciate and you've been i, I wouldn't say pestering me but you've uh, brought this topic up before cars that define a decade and you go we should do a show on that and i'm like you know, initially I was a little bit lukewarm for whatever reason. I was like, hmm, I don't know how good that's going to go. And then when I scheduled you for, hey, let's go ahead and do it, I started writing down, uh, starting in the 1930s all the way to the present day, cars that define a decade. And before you know it, I have a full page of, of <laughs> cars written down. And you said, you what, you have two pages of notes? I have about a, I have about a page and a half. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to cover... Uh when we talk about the cars that define a decade, we're going to look at it from an engineering standpoint and then a uh, aesthetic or looks, to, Styling. Uh, looks department as yeah. well. And the other thing, too, is, is I found myself as I was putting my list together that this will deviate just slightly from those topics, the engineering technology and the styling um, aesthetic standpoint, is cars that define a decade, but also how they hooked into the technology or the um, – not the technology, but the um, the um, what's the word that I'm looking for? The trends of a decade. Absolutely. You know, like a oh, muscle yeah. car decade. You know, like which muscle cars defined the, the decade that they were in, and things like that. And especially as we get later in the um, more current times, there's a lot of things coming up, like you know, automatic driving uh, or automated driving. Uh, auto, um, driver assistance systems, things like that, which I look at as, a, as kind of a trend, and then which cars are going to define those. But this is a great topic, so I'm glad that you uh, were persistent with me in uh, wanting to get this topic covered. And before we, we start, we always like to talk about um, 
at the top of each show uh, what's going on in our car world because we always like to talk about, you know, real world things that go on with our cars. And I was just telling you before we started recording that I recently had the, and I've talked about this already on the show, but I recently had the heater core replaced in the uh, Corvette. And I know you've fed me some information on what you've been doing with your Hyundai Elantra. Um, it is an Elantra, right? Yeah, it's an Elantra Sport. It's Sport, the, yeah. Uh, that's turbo, turbo with the dual clutch transmission. And you have that because you had your Fiat Abarth, which is totally cool. But you're a family man, and you have a young uh, young son, I believe. And, no, daughter. Or daughter, okay. And, you know, you need the practicality of a four-door car, because I think it's pretty funny that you had a Fiat Abarth, <laughs> and you're toting your kid around what? in that. I got her in and out of the car, no problem. I'm short, so I get her, you know, when she was in a child seat, I got her in and out of there, no problem. Yeah, well, that's good. But then I know that you've been you've been sending me, I know you've got new some new rims on your car, and you, you got, I, didn't you get a set of snow tires? You have those on a, one set of rims, then you have the summer tires on another set of rims? That's correct. I uh, recently, uh, a couple weeks ago, got the uh, winter tires taken off and got the uh, aftermarket wheels with the... Uh, OEM tires back on, cool. so it's, uh, it, the steering response is so much better, oh, yeah. but that's the trade-off with the winter tires. I used to do that drill uh, many years ago. I had um, winter, you know, dedicated Hakapalita snow tires uh, for a couple of my sobs on steel rims that I would put on in November and take off in, like, March or April, and then I would have... I never had a dedicated full-on summer tire. just was always an all-season radial, but those were my, you know... In essence, my summer tires. And I've really kind of gotten away from that because I don't drive. Uh, I have so many different cars that uh, I don't feel I need a dedicated winter tire for the amount of winter driving I do. The only the closest thing I did is about a year ago on the Porsche Cayenne, I decided to get the all-weather tire, which is the hybrid between an all-season and a full-on winter tire. And I keep those on year-round because they're designed to be year-round tires. And I have those on the Cayenne, which is the car that if it ever has a blizzard or really bad weather, that's the car I'm going to be driving anyway. So, but um, any other updates to your car? I know you've done a lot of little things on it, but no, no major uh, tweaks since last time. Nothing, nothing right now. I just uh, keep it, you know, kept it clean over the winter. And, uh, we had a pretty mild winter, yeah. so just uh, kept kept it maintained and kept it clean. Then got the oil change at the end of February. I had a free uh, oil change at the dealership that I bought the tire from, and. Uh, uh, emptied my catch can that I have, and I collected 24 ounces of uh, quote-unquote gunk out of that catch can over a um, couple months uh, period. So it, and, that was a great investment. And now, is that part of your air filter, or what is that? It's uh, hooked into the PCV system. Oh, okay. It, 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 it collects, um, like, the condensation that uh, would get, gets caught up in the uh uh, GDI engines, which are very common with uh, cars across the board now. Are you, so you're talking about direct injection, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. And what does that do? Is it like a, a separator kind of? Yes. And, and uh, it, it's, it's about a six-ounce can, and you, uh, you unscrew it, and then you just uh, empty it out. And I've been saving it in an old Diet Mountain Dew bottle. And when it separates, you have like um, a clear liquid at the bottom, and then you got like a uh, coffee cream and like coffee mix. It's huh. like, when it separates, it, when you look at that, you're like, that was going to be in my engine. And that's like, keeping it out of it. your your valve train and your upper upper yes. cylinder it, head. It's a it's a maintenance item to keep the uh, the valves a little cleaner yeah. with, the, with the GDI engines. But now what the manufacturers are doing is they're also 
going GDI with a separate fuel injection system that cleans the top of the valve. So it's like a dual, it's almost like a dual fuel injection system for uh, clean, keeping the uh, GDI engine cleaner now. Yeah, because I, I have direct injection on three of my cars. Um, I have it on, or two of my cars. I have it on my, uh, both, both the Porsches, the Cayenne and the 911. And I'm trying to remember if I have direct injection on the Mercedes. I think I do. I should, actually, because it's new enough. Um, but, again, I don't drive those cars a whole lot. I haven't had any issues. The only And two of them have higher mileage on them. The Cayenne's got 86,000 on it, and the Porsche 911 has sixty, almost 68,000 on it. And I haven't had any issues with, with the buildup. And I know it's something that people talk about a lot. And it's funny that you mention that because I remember on my 87 alpha spider it had some kind of weird like canister kind of filter on it too for that was just a electronic fuel injection i don't exactly know but it was tied into like the pvc pvc system or pcv system and it had this little like metal canister and you could unscrew the top and it had kind of like almost looked like steel wool in there that would kind of filter some stuff out and i'm not exactly sure what that was for but i remember i opened it up once and like what the heck is that and it had some kind of crap in it. That's for the uh, emission system. It like might, yeah, something to do with canister. the emissions, but it's kind of, it, was, it wasn't the charcoal canister. It was this little thing about the size of a water bottle, you know, not real big. But, I mean, this is 35 years ago because my car was in 87. But, you know, it's funny that different filters and things like that. But I haven't, I had not heard of the system that you're talking about, so it's good to know. Um, can you, is that made specifically then for your Hyundai or can you get it for other cars too? Uh, they do make it for other cars. I got mine from a uh, company in South Carolina called the uh, Sixth Element, and okay. they uh, they specialize in Hondas, but they they work on Ford. They do Ford parts as well, and they're a very uh, grassroots company, very high quality product. Cool. What's do you know what their website address is? probably just sixelement.com or you can okay. google it i don't have it okay no that's right fine now. i just i'm just curious we you know we don't promote a lot of stuff on the show but if we start talking about something interesting it's always nice to to know what's going on power but, of google yeah exactly yeah yeah google's your friend right if you yep. uh, like what we're doing here on the car guys report make sure you tell a friend not only google but your friends and your family and your neighbors about uh, the car guys report is available online at radiomisfits.com you can follow us at car guys podcast on twitter and of course our email inbox is always open for your comments suggestions rants raves uh complaints uh praise anything you want you can email us anytime car guys report at hotmail.com i'm mark vernon along with our man in the field roger rexroad for this uh, very special two-part episode that we're doing here today on the car guys report we're done chatting about cars let's get right down to the nitty-gritty of cars that define a decade and you know i kind of wanted to start with the 30s because i'm just not a real big early like like brass era kind of car fan. I know some people really get into those and they've just never really done that much for me. The only thing that I only came up with two very early ones, uh, the 1916 Packard twin six, which was their version of a V 12. That's what they called their V 12s. And a 19 and that, that ran actually from 1915 to 1923. So I just think that, you know, Packards are always known for engineering excellence and they did a lot of innovative things. And that's a very early brass, uh, kind of era car, not even because I always think the brass era is about to like 1910, maybe 1915. But 
in the 30s, Roger, I'll just start off with naming a couple and you can kind of jump in. Uh, I don't know how well versed you are in the 30s cars. Uh, obviously, any flathead V8 Ford definitely defined a decade, uh, starting with the Model A. Um, that's just a, a classic uh, car um, that people just identify with the 30s. Uh, well, that's the car I picked. That's yeah. the car I picked for the 30s. For, from the engineering standpoint, I picked the 32 Ford. You had yep. the first production V8 engine. Yep. It, spawned, it spawned hot rodding, and then yep. it spawned... It spawned the hot riding, uh, you know, a couple years, a couple decades down the road because those cars were so cheap. And then you also look at with that V8 engine, you, you know, the moonshiners gravitated to it so they can get away from the law easy. Well, exactly like what you know the, the famous story. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with this. That John Dillinger, the bank robber, actually wrote a letter to Henry Ford thanking him for making the V8 <laughs> because <laughs> exactly what you said, like the moonshiners, he had a super fast car and he could elude right. the uh, police. Um, and you're right, yeah, the, the start of hot rods and drag racing and and uh, salt flat type stuff in the 50s. People, all kinds of uh, of uh, speed parts available for the uh, flathead V8, even to this day, of course, too. But uh, definitely an iconic um, uh, engineering development that really transcended uh, so many different things in the automotive landscape. Obviously, things that we talk about, too. I just mentioned Packards. Various Packards throughout the 30s were considered classics. Duesenberg's is a car that yeah. defined just luxury Again, engineering, uh, spare no expense kind of thing, you know, stuff that movie stars would buy and order and things like that. And then one of the domestic, another domestic mainstream manufacturer, because Duesenberg was always kind of a, not really a specialty manufacturer, but a smaller manufacturer. But Cadillac in the 30s had the V16 Cadillac. And those are just right. incredible cars. I mean, and to, as, as far as I know, I think that was the... Only the the ever the only V sixteen production engine. I don't think, you know, we have the, the Bugatti now, but that's a W sixteen. But I never recall the I actual V sixteen. They had a V twelve. Either had a sixteen or they had a twelve. They had a twelve. I'm thinking of. Yeah, they had well, a twelve. You brought up you brought up the Duesenberg, and that's where that classic thing comes from. Hey, that's a Duesenberg. Exactly. That's where that came from. Yeah, and that just shows you how something in in you know one part of our society can transcend and become just a catchphrase for so many other different things. And exactly. That's what it's a doozy because Duesenberg's. So, so do you have a, a car from a, from a look standpoint that, that it just t took your breath away in the thirties? I would say the, the coffin nose cord, the uh, Cord Eight Ten, a great, great yeah, car. That's... And, and that was an engineering marvel too, because that was actually front wheel drive. And, and factory supercharger yeah. on some of them. And it's just like, talk about being ahead of its time. And just, yeah, the, to me, headlights. the headlights, just the look of that car is just awesome. And I think that's, from a from a styling standpoint, I mean, I'm sure Duesenberg is over the top and a great-looking car, but just there was nothing else like the Cord at the time. I mean, some of the Auburn boat tail roadsters were really cool, too. And, of course, Auburn, Duesenberg, and Cord were all, were all, you know, the same company. But... Um, the cord and and an interesting aside here too, Roger. I think I've talked about this before on the program many many months ago. About uh, thirteen years ago, uh, my girlfriend and I took a uh, train trip out west. We took the Empire Builder, which is the uh, the longest running uh, 
transcontinental passenger line running. It's been running continuously since like 1890 or something like that. And we stayed in um, uh, Whitefish, Montana, because um, it passes through Whitefish. We got off in Whitefish and stayed there a couple of days, and that's right near where Glacier National Park is. So we drove, we rented a car, and we drove over to Glacier about 30 miles, and we're in Glacier National Park, and we're just visiting one of the lodges there. And all of a sudden, three coffin nose cords pull into the lot. And these guys are wearing hats. They're all, like, in their 60s. And it says the two crew. And I was, you know, I started talking to them. And I said, this is so cool. And actually took a picture. And I, I, I didn't have this, this capability on my camera at the time. But if you would have sepia-toned the picture that I took of the cords in front of the lodge, which was built, like, in the 1930s, it would have looked like it was right from the 1930s because you had three coffin-nosed cords in front of this lodge. And these guys were driving their cords cross-country on Route 2 all the way to Auburn, Indiana, the home of the cord. And I'm like, yeah, that is the this. Auburn Cord Duesenberg Museum yep. there. And, and, and they're not doing it on interstate, so they're doing it on, on a route, Route 2, which goes through the mountains and stuff. And I'm like, I just respect you so much for doing that because that's what it's all about. I don't care how valuable your car is or that's how crappy right. it is. If it's going to make a trip like that and be reliable or reasonably reliable and you do it in style, not necessarily in comfort, but it's just so cool. And it's just that that's one well, of the highlights of that trip. And it was just, <laughs> it was just something that you'd never those see are, again, you those know? Are, those are real car enthusiasts. Exactly. So for, so for the 30s, uh, from a look standpoint, I picked the 37 uh, Ford Coupe. Okay, was the first year. That's the first year the headlights were integrated into the fender. He had that like teardrop headlight. And yeah, I just think a thirty. You you look at a thirty six, and it's got the like canister with the headlight on top. of Oh it. sure, yeah, it and just then, looks like a driving 30, light or whatever. Right, and right. And then in thirty seven, it was incorporated into the fender. That is beautiful. Well, talking about styling too, um, there are a couple ones that I added actually this morning because there's always stuff that's like popping into my head throughout the the last couple it, of weeks. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and partly because I'm reading a book too, a book that just came out from the author Neil Bascombe, um, a book called Faster, and it's about how kind of an upstart team. Uh, went to win the Grand Prix over Hitler in the uh, 1930s. And they're, they're talking about all these Delahays and Alfa Romeos and Delages and all these really classic makes from the 30s. And one car that I totally forgot about that I had to add to the list was the Mercedes-Benz SSK, which was a supercharged uh, straight eight. Just one of the most gorgeous cars you're ever going to see. And I believe, I know they came in Cabriolet versions. I think they also came in a, in a just a coupe version. I mean, they're like $3 million cars nowadays, but they're right. just so gorgeous. And a lot of the Alphas and Bugattis back in the 30s, too, were just drop-dead, unbelievable uh, just the styling of those things. It's just like, you can't believe that they actually, it was art. It really was. I mean, just the, the the details they would put in those things, like the engraving on the door handles and the way the dashboards would look and the, you know, the, the instruments look like watches and they just, just everything they did back then. I mean, if you were to build a car like that today, the cost would just be <laughs> astronomical. I mean, they were expensive back then for what, you know, for the time, but if they were to do it now, 
it would just be unbelievable. Even like when I'm at a car show with my 58 Impala and people look at the interior and they go, is that custom? And I go, no, that's stock. That came from the factory that way. It's got all this stainless steel. Everything's attached with a screw, not a clip. I'm like, you know how much this car would cost to make these days? <laughs> it's just... Well, they they do kind of make cars like that today. If, you, if you've ever seen a Pagani Huayra. Oh, yeah. But again, how much is like a, a wristwatch? But how much is a Pagani? Well, you said if they made one today, they're about a... Uh, a million, two million? million and a half, yeah. million dollars. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, sure they do. I know what you're saying. But yeah, it's just the cost is just astronomical. But I would say the Mercedes-Benz SSK and various Alphas and Bugattis. One thing that I'm doing here is I'm not exactly pinning down exact dates or model years for right. some of these cars, but then two more that I wanted to cover in the 30s, and then let's move on to the 40s. Uh, in the 30s, uh, various Pierce Arrows were another great uh, car, and that was the last gasp of that company because I think they went out of business in the late 30s. And, of course, a classic styling-wise and engineering-wise, Roger, that we can't forget about is the Airflow, Airflow Chrysler from yeah, the it was 30s. Ahead of its time. I oh, man. I putting the Airflow on here, but for some reason it just... Uh, uh, it's a, it, it really does look like the, the wind was flowing over the Total art, totally beautiful Art Deco design. Had that unibody construction, the famous uh, ad where they rolled it over a hill, bounced, you know, rolled end over end or side over side to the bottom of the hill, then they drove it away because it didn't crush because it was, you know. And, it, and that was an example, too, where even though that car, to me, was just beautiful looking, a lot of people thought it was kind of ugly, kind of oddball looking, and it didn't sell well at all so that's one reason why you hardly see them now because they didn't make that many of them but just I think a, it's a great looking oh, car it's I don't gorgeous know why i love it like how it looks I, I, yeah I it, it is kind of weird because that's when when art deco was still around and then that whole streamlined modern styling was coming along with like all the cool locomotives from the 30s and the 40s and, and that whole streamlined styling and i still think it was just a little too out there for some people i'm not sure why especially because it's the, the depression era too and maybe you're just you know you're struggling to survive and do you really want to buy this car that looks like you've got a ton of money or just you know boy that looks frivolous <laughs> but uh but some good some good picks there definitely in the 1930s in the 40s i don't have a lot because obviously car production uh yep. worldwide but but here the in the yeah here in the states was limited uh, i think the last cars produced here were early 41 and then we didn't really pick up again until like 47 or 48 but those are basically rehashes at least the 47s were or 46 47 were just rehashes of what they already had because they they wanted to use up some stuff and then 48 49 is when they started redesigning things so the only two i could really think of or three actually is just the jeep because that's when the jeep became came into the consciousness of of the uh public through world war ii um they weren't really being mainstream manufactured at that time but i think the jeep definitely defined you know the 40s as a as a design and, and something that really helped us win the war and then two other things that I thought of, and, and the 40s would be kind of the last gasp of these, too, but they still had some beautiful ones. Were the, the classic woody wagons, the actual wooden station wagons where they had ash or you know mahogany or whatever species of wood that they would use. And, again, that's a car that if they were, were to make today, the cost would be just astronomical to hand finish and hand fit all that wood. And then the only other car that I kind of thought of, and it, it transcended the late 40s into the 50s, but again, it's an outgrowth of the war, 
was when service the servicemen were coming back, it was kind of their first introduction being overseas to the European way of making cars and a lot of the smaller um, cars and the sportier cars and things we just didn't have here. And the MGTD was definitely a car that's almost kind of started the sports car craze here in the in the U.S. I think because you had a lot of servicemen bringing those things back, and you know they were just almost very ubiquitous. They were almost everywhere, and I think that's a car that really started to define things starting in the late late forties and then into the fifties as far as import sports cars were concerned but did you were you able to really think of anything from the 40s that that stood out in your mind well not to offend anybody out there that has uh 40s cars in their car collections a lot of those cars in the 40s they look like uh uh bathtubs they do down yeah. wheels on them yeah but i gotta i gotta tell you the in my opinion the most beautiful car of the 1940s is a 40 ford coupe real okay that, it's Beautiful, and you were talking about the Woody wagons. Chrysler also had the Town and Country, which was yep. also Woody's, and I think those my, are very collectible. I think my dad had one of those actually. I know he had a Town and Country. I, I don't know if it was a, a Woody or not because I probably have some ancient slides somewhere at home. But I remember seeing pictures or slides or something like that because he was kind of a car guy and he had some really cool stuff. And I think he had he had some kind of town and country. I don't know if it was a, a wood, woody one or not. And it's interesting, too, that a, a good friend of mine who will hopefully be on the program at some point because um, he's building a uh, having a resto mod built for him right now. But he's got a 40 Ford and it's a it's a resto mod, but it's a great car. Uh, it was actually featured on, on Lou's uh, YouTube channel, My Car Story with Lou. That. I was just and, that. and the that coolest was, thing. It was an original one. It's it's yeah. yeah. The cool thing about his and, and that's uh, my friend's name is Scott. And, and the cool thing I always tell him is I would just say I just love the way that. Your cars are resto-modded, but they're done so tastefully that they're not over the top in any way. His 40 Ford has the the, the classic 350 Chevy engine in it, of course, because that's all they do, it seems. <laughs> yeah. He's got a full custom interior, but it's done very tastefully. And then the body, just he just has moon hubcaps with black wall tires. It's lowered a that's little awesome. bit, but not a ton. That's all you need. And it's the coolest color. It's called Folkstone Gray. And it's kind of this cool beige-ish, grayish color. And it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but I think it's just the coolest, most understated color. And he loves that car. And it's just an awesome car. It really is. And, and you're right. The, the styling on that thing is just, it, it's incredible. Uh, another uh, car that I would think that you talk about bathtubs were, were the late, some of the late 40s Cadillacs were just classics, oh, yeah. too. I mean, a big slab-sided kind of bathtubby looking things, but... Very, very neat cars. And I mean, a forty Ford, uh, a black forty Ford with uh, with the red steely uh, smooth wheels, yeah, smoothie hubcaps, and a red interior, and a um, you know, it's got those, uh, I I call them sergeant taillights because they're like there's like exactly, three, yeah, they look like chevrons. They look like yeah, very yeah. distinct, yeah, or chevron, chevron, yeah, very very distinctive, and then like maybe a red grill, and you know, on a car like that, I mean, of course, a small black Chevrolet for hot riding. That everybody does, but there is a company out there that hot rods a flathead Ford. So I think opening up that hood and then seeing um, a red powder coated flathead Ford with a with the fins polished and three three carburetors would look awesome. It would. It would. I, I don't. I've always wondered about that. You know, everyone that's got a forty or a, a Ford that they resto mod, they always put a Chevy engine. 
<laughs> I just don't understand. I don't know if they're considered more reliable or they're just cheaper and easier to, to deal small. with. Maybe. There's, I, there's, I, a, there's a ton of them. There is a ton of them, yeah. So I always, I always found that to be an interesting conundrum. It's like, okay, you've got this gorgeous car. Why doesn't it have, like you were saying, you know, a, a, a totally modernized, uh, you know, rebuilt, uh, tweaked up, flathead v8 in it but i'm not going to take anything away from somebody that's got the, the 350 chevy in there because um you know you only see the engine most of the time when it's parked at a car show but yeah beautiful styling on on the 44 definitely a good call there we've got a uh, late sunday delivery here at the uh car guys report warehouse we're always getting deliveries of different uh car parts here and it's good to know that uh, fedex delivers on a sunday we'll be back right after this and friends and everyone at Opie shows want you to make sure to wash your hands and if you're still one of those people who don't wash their hands after they use the bathroom please do that now that's something you should have been doing anyway I... cover your mouth when you cough you can save the world by sitting on your ass at home you cannot afford to miss this opportunity you won't get another one great talk radio isn't dead it just moved to a better place radiomisfits.com stay home you will be saving the world this is minutia men with rick and dave on this week's minutia men with rick and dave news on the march spongebob is gay The Toilet Plume. Diego, the retiring tortoise. My brush with a comedy legend. And our interview with Steve Harper, writer, producer, actor. He did God Friended Me and a whole bunch of other great stuff. All that and unlimited tangents on this week's Minutia Men. The Tony Lasano Podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Radiomisfits.com. And we're back here on the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive. I'm Mark Vernon, along with our uh, man in the field, Roger Rexroad. We're giving uh, Luke Hostable a couple of days off, and we're back with our special two-part episode called the cars that define a decade we've been having such a great time uh let's move on to the 50s because there's just tons of stuff yeah there's and obviously I'll, i'll start i'll start with the obvious one the 1953 corvette because it just, nope. yeah, <laughs> just because it started, you know, the American, we talked, we touched briefly uh, a few minutes ago on the MGTD kind of starting the import sports car craze. But then, you know, Chevy just blew everyone away with the, with the 53 vet. And actually it wasn't, it wasn't a really good car to begin with. They had problems with the fiberglass. It only had that blue flame straight six with a power glide. I mean, performance-wise, it was okay, but it didn't really light the world on fire. But I think it was just such a departure, a two-seater, a, a, you know, a kind of a cool-looking body, and it just really you know, wowed people, I think, back. Is that your car for that's going to... Um that that's, uh, defines the decade of the 50s is a 53, 54 Corvette? No, there's more than that. I have definitely okay. more than that. But that's the one I'm that that's that was the one that was at the start the top of my fifties list here, and I'll just I'll just list two more and then you can jump in because I know you'll okay. agree with the the, the Thunderbird. Started in 55 as a competitor to the Corvette, more luxurious, but it had the V8, had the classic hardtop with the porthole window. Um, and then the Tri-5 Chevys, of course, 55, 56, 57 Chevys. Those probably more than anything define the decade there because it was attainable. They came in a lot of different styles, convertible, two-door, two-door post, hardtop, four-door, station wagon. Uh, nomads. Yeah, nomads, straight sixes, V8s, um, you know, just something for everybody, I think. And 
they all had distinctive styling. And, and I always wondered, though, and maybe you can enlighten me here a little bit, is I think they're okay. They don't really do a lot for me. And I can understand, though, why they're classics. But what is it about the Tri-Fives? I mean, what really caught people's eye with that? Why were they, or even now, considered to be just so iconic? Well, it's real simple. We were just talking about it with the 40s. When you look at a 1954 Chevrolet, and then you look at a 55, it is like the gavel got dropped. And the, the 55 Chevy in particular, the grill, the egg crate grill was styled after the Ferrari. So you had a, I'm not saying they were trying to copy a Ferrari, but they took a little bit of the styling cues from the Ferrari. Sure. But the, but the, you had the upside down bathtub in 1954, and then you had this beautiful car. Much more modern looking. That's very yeah. modern, yeah. you know, and then and then you also had, you know, uh, you also had uh, you had available V8 engine, which was, you know, uh, was a big deal, you know, in the car. But the 50, the Tri-5s are always going to be joined at the hips because they do not, most of us know uh, the difference between a 55, 56, and 57, but for some reason, they're just joined at the hips. So um, I, I can't argue with you about that defining the decade. My my buddy Derek uh, actually said the Tri Five Chevys when I spoke to him about this. Yeah. But for me, for me, I narrowed it down to one thing. We were talking about Cadillac earlier. Oh yeah, Cadillac. Well, I... Cadillac owned the 1950s. A 1957 Cadillac Eldorado Brome. That car had memory seats. It sure also did. was the first. It was also the first. Um, car to get the quad headlights because it went to quad headlights in 58 but the 57 eldorado uh brome got that and that car had also had airbag suspension and sure. that car it had suicide out there listening anybody out there listening to the show google 57 cadillac eldorado brome stainless steel roof yeah and the, suicide the, doors i mean suicide doors I, this this car is incredible looking it is. There was one at, at a show last year, and I was talking to the guy, and I, di- I said the exact same thing you did. I said, you know, that, that car has memory seats in it, and that's, like, pretty amazing back in the, you know, <laughs> in the late 50s, a car with memory right. seats, and the stainless steel roof was very cool. And, yeah, that, that car, and it had, I think one of the options was, like, a perfume set for the glove box or something like that, some factory perfume bottle collection or something like that, just... These, I don't recall that. You know, but, crazy uh, luxury over-the-top things. And I think that car sold for something like $13,000 back yeah, then. Yeah, they lost money on every car. Yeah. It was, you know, it, I'm not going to take anything away from the Lincoln Mark II. That was a great-looking car. But for the engineering of the 1950s, and a iconic look came out of pure engineering, and that's the, the original 300 SL Gullwing. The reason that car has those gullwing doors is because the frame went up so high, so they had to chop the doors, and then that's how that car got to have its look. And that car also had direct injection. Of course, it was mechanical fuel injection, yeah. but direct injected, and that was a, a six-cylinder that would do 150 miles an hour. Sure. That car will blow the doors off of uh, the early Corvette. It's funny, too, because that's, that, that's one car I didn't I, I forgot to put on the list, so I'm glad you brought up the Gullwing <laughs> Mercedes. It's a classic. Um, I did want to say, as long as Cadillac, you know, the 50, well, you're talking about the 57 um, 
El Dorado. Um, you know, that's like Hollywood all the way, you know, you, just the kind of cars that you see like Elizabeth Taylor would be getting out of or something like that. It's just so cool. And then, of course, the, we can't neglect, though, the 59 Caddy, the over the top with the huge fins and the, you know, just the, the epitome of the of the space age or jet age styling, because starting in the mid 50s, that's when they started getting the, the fins and the and the whole space race kind of uh, styling. And the 59 Caddy, of course, was the one that just pushed way over the top with those huge there's fins. There's more 59 Cadillac tail lights on other cars than 59 They're probably, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, and since I'm biased, Roger, I wanted to, do, to include my 1958 Chevy Impala in this list because it is considered a, a full-on CCCA classic or whatever the designation is. And I think the Impala was just, you know, I, I just love the, the look of that car. And the thing is, it, it had the look. It wasn't over the top, but it had the quad headlights. It has fins, but they're more, they're flatter fins instead of being vertical. And it just had a lot of the, the space-age touches here and there without being over the top. It was more tastefully done and 58 was a the Impala was actually an option package in 58 for the uh, Bel Air and then right. it proved so successful that it became its own model for 59 but um I just think it's a, it's a classic style and it's funny because that that car is kind of a love hate thing too cuz I'll go to car shows and I'll have people say you know I just love the 58 Impala that's my one of my favorite cars ever and then I'll get you know then 10 minutes later some guy will come by and go like your car is beautiful but you know nothing against you but I just don't like these 58 Impalas and I've run into people like that I'm like fine I don't care but I don't know what's polarizing about that, but... Well, I'll tell you what. Growing up in Detroit, uh, I went to so many car shows uh, growing up. It took me a long time to warm up to the 58. I think the 58, just because I'm, I like hot rods and you know muscle cars, yeah. you, you don't really see a lot of 58 Impalas uh, hot rodded. They are better left as parade Stock. quotes. yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I've seen enough of resto-modded ones with the Kreger mags, and and they it don't really do anything right. for you. No, it doesn't. I mean, no. I've got mine's full on stock, except for the uh, which would have been uh, dealer accessories, the fender skirts and the Continental kit. But it's yeah, totally period. Yeah, it's period correct, and it's just yeah, you're right. It, it, <laughs> parade flow. I haven't really heard that term play, before, but to, it looks you awesome. Have to play to that. You have to play to that car's strength, and it, because it's a parade float. You know, put the dual antennas, the fender skirts. Uh, Which I have, you know, the dual all, antennas. Yeah, to me, that yeah. just, the symmetry there is just perfect. Symmetry, <laughs> got to have it on that car, absolutely. A couple other cars that I thought of uh, for the 50s would be the Hudson, the Hornet. And partly because big NASCAR. yeah, big and NASCAR exactly had the step down design, low center of gravity, those awesome twin H power six cylinders with those big dual carbs on there. Uh, just a very kind of bathtubby looking car, but a very iconic car. And then um, as the performance, not the muscle car, car era yet, because we're in the 50s, not the 60s, but Chrysler introduced their letter cars, the 300 series starting in 1955 through the mid-60s. And that was just some great designs there with big Hemi engines and, um, you know, still big cars, but modern, not slab-sided, a uh, certain amount of jet-age styling, but not still not over the top. And I think it was, I know Chrysler had the push-button transmission. Did they also have the push-buttons? I know they had them on the dash. Was it Chrysler that had the push-buttons in the center of the steering wheel, too, or was that That's another? Etzel, okay. The Etzel had that. Okay, interesting. 
And that's yeah. another one you, that, that I didn't write down. The Etzel defines a decade ugly. in a bad way, right? Uh, ugly. Uh, <laughs> but as far as I understand uh. it, though, I always thought the Etzel was actually supposed to be a pretty good car from the engineering standpoint. I know they had some quality uh. control issues initially, but I well, always understood it. strike year that year. In 1958, there was a big strike. Well, there was so, a recession, uh, too, in 58, and that, that's yep. what impacted car sales. Yeah, now, so the, 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 the I, I think it was the, the initial Etzels were a little iffy in quality, but I always thought that engineering-wise, it was a pretty good car. Maybe I'm wrong. The other, but... thing, about, the other thing about 1958, besides the Etzel, they completely ruined the Thunderbird. Oh, uh, yeah, the Square uh, Bird. Uh, I always kind of like those for whatever reason. Really? Yeah. I mean, they're odd-looking, but they're kind of cool. I, you, you, it's, it's hard to follow up a 57, and they proved that you can't do it because that the T-Bird did not, in my opinion, didn't regain itself until... 61 with the bullet bird. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then another car uh, import that I wanted to bring up was the uh, Nash Metropolitan. Uh, yep. From a standpoint of, those were actually built in England by Austin, and they were marketed here through through Nash. And another that's another car that my dad had back in the... Um, in the late fifties, he had one. Shortly after um, he was married, in it. has that little yeah? It's a little one point one liter or one point two liter uh, four cylinder. The small ones, I believe, are eight hundred and fifty cc. Oh, that, they're they that small. To, they, yeah, they went up to twelve seventy five. Yeah, I know they were around that, would, like one liter, one point two, something I would like think that. For the U.S. market, they would have put the biggest engine possible, just so the car wouldn't get run over on our super expressway. Well, that would kind of uh, ruin the idea behind it, though. It's a small car; people think it's it it should be easy to park, get great gas mileage, things like that. Um, but I think the Nash Metropolitan was a car that just defined. Uh, you know, the, the, the very, very beginnings along, too, and I'll say this, another car they just saw, the Henry J, which is also sold through Sears as an Allstate brand. Um, the Henry J was considered affordable, compact car. And I think those were those two cars in the 50s from American manufacturers were actually the very beginnings of the compact car uh, craze that actually... I think really took hold here in the States in the seventies. And we'll get to some of those cars that I'm thinking oh, yeah. really define the seventies compact car wise in a bit. But, um, yeah, the Henry J and you hardly ever see Henry J's. Most of them are hot rodded, made into dragsters and things like that. Um, they're very hard to find in original, you know, unmodified condition. I always thought that's kind of a neat-looking car, though, too. It's it's kind of quirky, a little two-door coupe. And the very first ones didn't even have a trunk lid on them um, to save money because uh, they were, like, they retail for something like $1,200 or $1,300 or something like that. And um, you bought that, and you said that car was available in the Sears Through catalog? Sears, as, as branded as an Allstate, Yeah. So, so it would it would it would say Sears Best next to it. Remember the yeah. Sears catalog? It would say Sears Best. Yep. Yeah. So that's some I'm of the, myself saying that. Some of the things that we're never going to see again, definitely. But nope. um, 
So that goes up to the 50s. We got to take a quick uh, promo here, Roger. We'll, we'll jump right back into the uh, 1960s, uh, jump into the 1960s in just a minute. But if you like the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive, that's what you're listening to right now. Be sure to check out some of the other programs on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network, like the show Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. It's an OPI show. Uh, my good friend Rick Kempfer and Dave Stern interview celebrities every week. And as the name Minutia Men implies, the Interviews often delve into lesser-known details of well-known celebrities or examinations into celebrities that, well, aren't as well-known. Fun, compelling, and memorable, it's Minutia Men's Celebrity Interviews, an OPI show available on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. You can go to opishows.com or wherever you find podcasts, just search for Radio Misfits, and that's where you'll find our show. You've got the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive. Mark Vernon along with our man in the field, Roger Rexroad, for a special two-part episode. We're having just a great time talking about cars that define a decade. We've worked from the 30s through the 50s. And right now, uh, Roger will continue on into the 60s. And not to sound like a broken record, I'm going to start off the 60s by saying Corvette and not exactly defining a specific year, although the 63 split window has to be pretty much almost at the top of the list. There's a couple of other very strong contenders. Um, I know you like a lot of the later big block um Corvettes in the late '60s, but you know you can't go well, wrong I'm with this. Black guy, uh, actually. Oh, you are okay. I didn't know that, but yeah, because because with the thing with the big block is that's all straight line performance. When sure. Small block, no handling. Lining, it's a better better driver. Yeah. Well, you're right. You know what? You're, you're you need to bring up the '60s with the Corvette. I, I, I'm not going to get into my picks yet because I know you got your picks. The thing with the 1960s with the Corvette, and you will never ever ever see this again. You had three distinct body styles from 1960 to 1969. Yeah, you did. You're never going to see that again, yeah. ever. Yeah. And of those three, which one was your favorite? <laughs> you know what my favorite is. A- anybody who's listened to me a couple times on the show, my favorite, and it's the greatest car ever, and it's not my pick because I didn't want to be a homer, is the, <laughs> is the, mid-year, the mid-year Corvette Coupe. So I disqualified that car because i'm so partial to that car but is that the what the 69 which what year is that the the 63 to 67 okay yeah oh the mid-year okay mid-year corvette yeah so those are that's my favorite car of all time and definitely helped out too i mean you know we, we talk about how how the trends in automobilia can transcend into other things pop culture of course we had um Route 66, the the show with um, uh, Martin Milner and um, what's his name? Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, driving, what, like a 61 uh, vet. And people, and since those were done in, in black and white, people always wondered what color was their car? Was it blue or red or, or whatever? Um, but, um, you know, that car kind of, you know, Chevy obviously was a sponsor of the program, but it really cemented again, helped to cement the idea of road tripping and seeing America, you know, see the USA in your Chevrolet, but seeing it in a really cool car like that, too. So George Maharis is the guy I'm thinking of. So his partner. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I haven't watched a lot of that show, but I've watched enough of it. And, you know, it's pretty cool. And they're just tooling around in, <laughs> in their Corvette. Well, I, I will tell you that. Um, so I disqualified my mid-year Corvette because I didn't want to be too much of a homer. 
So uh, my pick of the 1960s is the Jaguar E-Type, which came out in 1961. Yep. For Enzo Ferrari said that is the most beautiful car ever made. And then if you look at a 62 Ferrari uh, 250 GTO, it's very similar yeah. to an E-Type. But the E-Type, when you look at what the Jaguars looked like in the late 50s, to like an XK120, XK140, when the E-Type came out, I, I, I have to, if there's anybody out there listening that's old enough to remember when that car debuted, it'd be great to hear from them. The, the, it must have taken everybody's breath away. That car is beautiful. It is. It is. It's a definitely, a, a, you know, I use the word iconic a lot, and I like things it's that I consider iconic. to be iconic because to me, iconic to me relates to being timeless. And also sublime, too. I mean, because I think that's that's you can have something that's beautiful and kind of over the top. But I think there's when something is sublime, it's just such a solid design or such a solid concept that there's just something that's almost indefinable about it. And and I think the E class, the E type, fits into that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think non car non car people know what an E type. Oh, sure. That's how. That's how iconic that car is. Yeah. They, they see that car, and they say, that's a Jaguar. And when did the V12 debut in that car? Was it the late 60s, or was it 70? I believe it was 1970, and i got to tell you, that the, the 1970 to 74 Jaguar E-Type, um, not the, a good look. With the big car. rubber baby buggy bumper the, add-ons yeah, on it, yeah. And they also added that uh, two plus two. Yeah, that that always looks, added a like weird look to like it. it. Yeah, it looks like it's got a big baseball hat on it. You're right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just not not a particular. And sorry to offend people. I know uh, there's people out there that like their um, seventy to seventy four E type, but not a not a just everything's different on that car. And so, as as much um, as I like V12 engines too, really that the straight six in the E type is really the the preferred engine. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it was a beautiful engine. Oh, it is. It's gorgeous. I, I actually, have um, you ever seen a V twelve engine in those E types? Oh yeah, I have. Yeah, it's nothing but Terrible. vacuum lines and it's <laughs> just, exactly. And and they used to run so warm that they would just cook all that rubber underneath the, the the engine. They weren't necessarily unreliable mechanically, but they had so much heat coming off that engine that it would just basically dry out dry rot all the vacuum lines and and radiator hoses and all that stuff electrical connections and i think that's what contributed to some of the, the reliability issues that they had with those so, cars but the jag e-type oh yeah any other cars from the look and well the the jag e-type was on my list so we're, we're good there one of my all-time two, two cars that you can't think of the 60s without no um you know you, you got to include them of course it's a 64 and a half mustang when it was you know lee iacocca's um pet project uh blew everybody away sold hundreds of thousands of cars right out of the box basically it was the affordable sports sporty kind of car that 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 americans could buy for the first time i think and then Swinging a little to more to the performance aspect of it, but I just think always from a styling standpoint too, just the the, the Cobras, the AC Cobras, whether it was the two eighty nine or the four twenty seven, I just you know when I was in junior high, I was like, God, that's the car I want, you know. <laughs> that's when you could still Don't get them for like thirty thousand dollars. 
Don't forget the original Cobra had a 260 in it. Was it 260? Okay, because I know they had 289s yep. in them, but the 260s, yeah. That yeah, came after, that came after the 260. Okay. But, yeah, just a gorgeous car um, and just, you know, I don't know as far as uh, the handling was probably okay. I know in a straight line they were just faster than stink. Um, but being uh, – The 427. In well, the 427 especially. But since – Shelby had a hand in it, you know, I think as a road car. I mean, they, they competed in a lot of races. And then, of course, they had the the uh, the Cobra Daytona, the coupe that they made. Yeah. And I don't know if that car was ever – was that car ever sold to the public, that coupe design, or was it always just a racing uh, car, do you I know? I believe that was just – that was no, you know what? That was definitely not sold to the public. I that didn't. was a purpose-built race car. Yeah, Everything that's was, what I uh, thought. Brock, Ye- Brock Yates designed that car to – to, to win Lamar, I mean, the, the way it's longer in the back for aerodynamics yeah. and everything is purpose-built for that car. Which they're starting to rediscover, too, not to get off on a big aside here, but it seems like I'm seeing pictures of Bugattis and McLarens with those rear ends that are, like, going out from... Long tail. Yeah, the long tail, exactly. And they're realizing that that's, you know, for top speed and stuff, it's, it's, it's very beneficial. But it's I think it makes the cars look really cool, too. But a couple other ones here, Roger, that I've got on my list. Uh, Mopar Hemis, of course, in the 60s, uh, kind of became very ubiquitous. You can't forget about the 65 Chevy Impala uh, because that's still, in this day and age, in 2020... The 65 Impala still holds the all-time sales record of 1 million units sold of one model. I mean, that's just unbelievable when you think about it. And, it, you know, that car, you, you can't say that car didn't define the generation because, first of all, there's just so damn many of them that they sold. They were everywhere. It's right in the middle of the decade, too. So <laughs> you see them for— I don't think for, a lot of people would even realize uh, how many of those they sold. I, I will tell you, the, the one car that uh, when I was— scratching down my notes on this um it was very tough for me to pick over this car because i picked the e-type and i'm going to stick with it but the ninth the original lamborghini mira oh yeah that was that was that that is your first production supercar mid mid engine v12 and then when you look at that car like it, it i'm sure you know this when you open up the doors the way the little uh, door uh, parts of the door go up, it looks like a bull, a bull's horn. Yeah, and the whole rear end and, to, and, t- tilted up. Yes, I, that car. That, uh, that's another. So when people got their breath uh, four years after the E type came out, then they saw this this sixty five or uh, it came out in uh, sixty six. Sixty six. Yeah. Their breath got taken away again. Yeah. Yeah, that the car. 60s, the 60s were the, I don't know how you feel about this, but in my opinion, the 1960s was the greatest decade ever for automotive, ever. Really? Well, and I'm, well, let me, let me say this, too. For the engineering, and I'm going to back it up when I say this about the 1960s. Although the original Mini Cooper came out in 1959, you want to talk about a car that was associated with counterculture and the regular person, you look at the original Mini, the wheels were stretched out as far as they could go to the corner. Mm-hmm. The engine was, you know, it's front-wheel drive, but the engine was put in First transversely. transversely, yep. 
And so, and then you maximize the amount of space. I don't know if you've ever been in or drove an original Mini. They're actually pretty damn big. And oh no, I know. Yeah, I've I've seen a million of them at car shows. I've got a friend I think that's got one or two of them. I've never driven them, and I don't know if I've sat in them. But Alex uh, Asajanis, or however you pronounce his last name, um, you know, he designed that car to to hold four adults. It and does. it does. I've driven them. Yeah. Driven them. I drift, I've driven a left-hand drive and a right-hand drive one on Woodward Avenue back home. And uh, it takes a little bit of time to get up to speed. But oh, once, of course. You're go, once you're going the speed, it has no problem maintaining that speed. But if you also think about this, even though it's not a hatchback, it really is the precursor to the hot hatch. Oh, yeah. No doubt. And that that is a that that is a totally groundbreaking car because, like you said, it basically has the same. I mean, my my twenty nineteen Fiat five hundred and your Fiat Abarth is basically the same layout as the original Mini. Right. Front wheel drive, small transversely mounted four cylinder engine, a wheel at every corner, a relatively roomy interior, very compact exterior dimensions, and that's forty fifty years later. And, and that's and, still a viable and design. Thing, and the other thing with the with the Mini is you had your rock stars at the time. So you had the Beatles had them, the Rolling Stones had them, but you also had a regular working class person owned a car like that too. And then they also made a couple variants. You know, they had the original Clubman if you needed a little bit more mm-hmm. room. They made, a, they made a station wagon version. And then John Cooper got involved oh, yeah. in the race version. And then the car uh, won the... Uh, the rally championship in 1960 they run i think they won it in 65 64 65 and it missed the year and then i think it won it again in 67 so it was a very competitive little car as well oh yeah it was and and it, it's kind of um you know there's other smaller cars that that were coming out and of course i'll be a little biased here too i'm not saying the the saab 96 defined a decade necessarily but it's the same kind of um concept you know a, a small car front wheel drive rugged roomy um low cost and a, and a design that was so good they stuck with it for you know in, in saab's case they stuck with it for 20 years um but the Mini, all the points that you say, uh, have mentioned with the Mini are definitely uh, totally solid. Um, I got a couple other, um, I guess I'll start just, I'll mention two more imports because since we're talking about the Mini, or three more imports, the Volkswagen Bug or Beetle uh, started to really make inroads into the U.S. in the 60s, as well as the iconic Volkswagen Bus. Uh, you can't uh, even think about the 60s without, you know, the hippie culture and the, and the Volkswagen buses and all the, the, the Beatles driving around, uh, people uh, enjoying a, a rear engine, air-cooled engine car that didn't need a lot of maintenance, that would run forever, get great gas mileage, and would float. Remember, I think they had ads or something where they'd show, a, uh, since they had the flat floor, plan, uh, floor pan, that a Volkswagen would actually float. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know for how long, but at least it would float for a while. Uh, just because uh, we we tend to talk about how cars can trans- transcend into pop culture, vice versa. Um, Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate driving the Alpha Spider kind of cemented that car in, in, in our consciousness, which is kind of neat. And then uh, another car that not a lot of people obviously couldn't afford, but it kind of really defined... Maybe another different era of cool and luxury would be James Bond's 
Aston Martin DB5 that first appeared in Goldfinger in 1964. I mean, that's just a this classic car. That's yeah. why I was saying, Mark, uh, uh, Mark, I was saying that the 60s were going to be very difficult because um, there is no right, wrong or right answer, and I will not argue with anybody if they say the Aston Martin uh, DB5. That, that's a that's an iconic beautiful looking it is and i think if if you ask most people today you know when you think of an aston martin what car do you think of and and that's the car the db5 the james bond car because it's it's you know those knockoff wheels and the just the silver paint of course all the doodads he had on it but just a it's an incredible incredible car so so for our listeners out there let's just recap the 1960s the mid-year Corvette, the E-Type, the Lamborghini Miro, the Aston Martin DB5. The Cobra. I mean, that's Mustang. The Cobra. The Mustang. I, I mean, it's the 60s were the was the greatest decade, in my opinion. Well, I've got I've got three more, four more to add to the to the to the 60s here. Uh, the Pontiac GTO, basically what first is considered to be car. the first muscle car by um, yep. John DeLorean. The Buick Riviera that came out in '63. Uh, just a great design. Um, I'm not exactly sure who was who penned that design, but Bill Mitchell. Was it a Bill Mitchell? Okay, because that's a that's great same, looking car. He's uh, also the same. He's also the same person that designed the mid year Corvette. He, okay, he should have a he should have a statue somewhere in Detroit. Um, but the, yeah, the 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 Riviera was was one of the ones that kind of started or continued the the idea of a personal luxury car, which is a car that would blend performance and luxury into a, a, a two door hardtop style. Um, when, when we would see in the Cougars that started coming out in the '60s, and who can forget the Cougar with the sequential taillights or turn signals that is one of the defining aspects of that. And, and go to your Lincoln Mercury dealer, the sign of the cat. Remember the, the actual yeah, like the, cougar they had with the hot chick and I her would, mini skirt. And... I, would, <laughs> I would say the cougar, the cougars were to, in my opinion, anyway, but and the cougars are great looking cars. They were for the person that was maybe a little older. Sure. Well, the person, the idea of personal a luxury, older, a little older, a little older to drive a Mustang, but still wanted the sport because yeah. I, I believe they share underpinnings with each other. Uh, they certainly shared a lot of engines because you yeah. could get a you could get a Cougar with a four twenty nine. Sure could, uh, yeah. Overjet, yeah. In it, um, you know? But that's the idea of the personal luxury. You know, the the, the Riviera was the same way. You could get a, you could get like a four hundred or a four twenty five or whatever in that car, and it had the you know the console and it had the you know the bucket seats and and like the mid sixties, early to mid sixties. Thunderbirds before they became this weird four door thing in the late sixties. Uh, yeah, that uh, that's pretty weird. Uh, but you know the banquette yeah. seating they had in the in the like the sixty four. If you've ever seen the back seat of a, a sixty four T bird, it, it has what I call banquette seating because it's got the it's kind of curved like a booth in a it's in rounded, a yeah, yeah. In, in it's like a booth in a restaurant. It's so cool. And it's like why don't they do stuff like that anymore? And the and the switch the the handles for the for like the air vents and stuff are like T handles like on a like something you'd an see airplane. like on an airplane, yeah. It's just some of the coolest designs. A couple other yeah, ones. The T-Bird, the T-Bird had quite an identity crisis in the 1960s. Oh, it did. Sure. It it starts it started off the 1960s on the uh well the 19 the 1960 like a bullet bird, but then it ended like in flames. A four door Thunderbird and yeah, even the with, with suicide doors. Ah. <laughs> God. I know, sure. I know. But Ugh. surprisingly, those are rare cars these days. You never see them anywhere. 
Yeah, that's good. And they, for that. yeah, but they have some collectability now. I have a couple more that I wanted to add. Uh, the '66 Oldsmobile Tornado, from an engineering standpoint, one of the first. Yeah, one of the first, uh, actually the first mass-produced uh, American front-wheel drive car. I know we talk about the Cord in the in the '30s, but there was such a long gap yeah. between that and the and the and the that, and that's Tornado. The mass-produced like the Tornado or the Tornado is. Yeah, and the and, and the Tornado went on to um, basically the same layout. Started powering the Eldorados then too, were front-wheel drive with. Nineteen sixty seven Eldorado. With a huge V eight it had a four fifty five, I think, in it with that Morris uh, chain drive. The Cadillac had a the Cadillac had a four twenty nine. And the Olds uh, had a four fifty five, didn't it? Uh uh the the sixty six would have had a four twenty five. The four fifty five didn't come out until nineteen sixty eight. Okay. But I know it had a big honking V eight. It had that more Absolutely. what they called the Morris chain drive to connect the engine to the transmission because the way they had to rejigger everything in front to fit everything in. I mean just an engineering masterpiece and a cool looking car with those headlights and the interiors were cool because it had a flat floor because it was front wheel drive and yep. it had a it the, has a drum speedometer in it too which i always thought was really cool so um i think that's what you would call it would be a drum speedometer is when you're looking I call at it, it a toilet paper i call it a toilet, toilet paper roll yeah that's what I call and it, it just it starts yeah, rolling as you're driving it starts rotating and it goes from 10 to 20 to whatever but it's just really cool look inside the dashboard like that and it's just well like, when you look at a 66 tornado like if you look at general motors cars in 1966 if you had them all lined up of course the corvette stands out but then you look at that Oldsmobile, you're like, wow. I mean, I mean, the Tornado and the Corvette. I mean, styling. I mean, that that was over the top. Yeah. Well, they had. I think they had. You know, there was before. Before all the safety regulations started happening in the in the late '60s and into the '70s, with like, you know five mile an hour bumpers and and you know the side marker lights started coming in in the late '60s, but the seat belts and all that stuff that started happening, where it started to sometimes negatively affect car design in the in the middle part of the '60s. They were still pretty much had free reign to design stuff to look really cool and didn't have to worry about a lot of the, you know, safety aspects of it. But then the only other thing I was going to mention for the 60s, Roger, was the Corvair, because that defined a decade in a, in a couple of a couple of ways it defined it from the standpoint of just being a groundbreaking design that that GM never had before a flat six. Rear engine, rear wheel drive like a Porsche. Some of them were turbocharged. You could get it convertible. You could get it uh, station wagon. They made the ramp side pickup. They made uh, the two doors, the four doors. I mean, a lot of really cool cars. And when the when, when the Corvair first came out in the early '60s, it was a small car and it kind of grew in size. But I always thought it's a pretty darn attractive car. Nice clean lines. Um, then of course Ralph Nader with the book unsafe at any speed because of the the trailing uh the i don't know if it's called trailing arm but the whatever the rear suspension was i think it was the trailing arm rear suspension that you get nasty oversteer if you drive it too fast and that could cause the car to flip over and that was actually kind of i think too overblown but but it was like the first big safety scandal or whatever it was proven to be untrue and it's too bad that and it killed the car Right, the amount of effort that was uh, put into take it, to take the car down was not put into um, 
trying uh, to save to get it. it off the hook. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they made the car. They made the car from 1959 to 1969. So yeah. I mean, it had it had a, it had quite a run. But I mean, moving into the in the 70s, who knows if you know emissions or safety would have change the look of the car who knows you know it, it's hard to say i mean you know porsche had the same issue i mean with 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 an early 911 those cars were if you didn't know how to drive them they had the same problem the the snap oversteer or whatever you call it where you can be in a turn and if you uh or, or lift throttle oversteer whatever it was called where like you would lift the throttle in a turn and you could all of a sudden go into oversteer where you wouldn't be able to recover from it but porsche sorted it out um and I'm sure that it, given the resources of GM, they could have figured it out too, but they probably just didn't, you know, I think it was, it was just at the point, the, the model was so negatively perceived by people that just like, why even bother to try to save the reputation exactly. of it and let's move on. But it's unfortunate because I think Corvairs have always been kind of pretty neat cars. And I see a handful of them at, uh, at the um, uh, car shows. And for many years here in the Chicago area, the Chicago Corvair Club used to put on the uh, Orphan Car Show. They ran for 25 years. They they stopped doing it uh, about five years ago. And that was a great show because you would see any kind of weirdo orphan car, but then you'd also see literally maybe a hundred different Corvairs <laughs> show up at the, at the show. So it was, a, it was a neat, uh, it was a neat time, but we got to take a quick break here. We would like for you to stay home and keep listening to Opie shows. You'll be saving the world at the same time and also be sure to wash your hands. We're coming up to the uh, last decade that we're going to do in this first part, Roger. Cars of the 1970s. And of course, uh, I know that the 70s, I didn't have quite as many in the 70s as I had in the 60s, but There's I basically, yeah, I got my driver's license in the 70s. Um, I have probably the clearest recollection of the cars that we owned as a family in the 70s. So I've got a, a handful of, of cars here, and we're starting to see more trucks uh, come into the uh, – I know this is the Car Guys report, but, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about SUVs and pickups and vans from time to time. Um, but two cars that I'm going to uh, say right off the bat, and this uh, – goes along with what we were talking about earlier about how American cars uh, were starting to get into the whole compact car craze. Because in the 70s, we had the oil embargo and the and the gas shortages and things like that, a lot of uncertainty in the economy, a lot of inflation, and um, two cars that basically defined, not for, not for better, I think, but probably for the worse, would be the uh, Chevy uh, Vega and the Ford Pinto, both uh, low-cost uh, compact cars, uh, four-cylinder engines, um, rear-wheel drive. The Pinto, of course, had a black mark on it because of the design of the gas tank and back. Uh, if you got rear-ended at a certain speed, it had a danger of basically exploding. And the uh, Vega had reliability issues because it was an all-aluminum engine that would overheat and uh, basically destroy itself, as well as I believe it was one of the first cars to use water-based paint. And they just rusted like anything. We had a 72 Vega Camback wagon, the classic uh, kind of like medium metallic green Vega. Of course it was green. And yeah, well, they, <laughs> they all were, right? And I, I remember, I mean, we bought my, my, my dad bought it used with like 6,000 miles on it. So it was only like six months or not even a year old. And I swear within one year, the front fenders were completely rusted through. And the doors were completely rusted through. 
and they got him replaced. GM did pay for the replacement on those because he he pitched a fit, and they replaced the fenders and the doors. But I mean, just how quickly they rusted, and they had no inner fender liners. I don't think they ever had used primer on anything. It was just ridiculous. We didn't have any so over. My uncle, so my I'm sorry, so my uncle that who's also my godfather, he also had a uh, the first. Uh, well, there was only one generation, but I yeah. know they did a they did a refresh, uh, mid cycle refresh. He, I think he had like a seventy one. And the the towel that held the wiper arms it rusted, so the wiper arms fell into the towel. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I can see that. The, the, the cars are, you know, um, I mean, they, I mean, I'm sure you know about the Cosworth. Thing. Oh yeah, the Cosworths I mean, were that, awesome. But that car was so watered down; it had a true Cosworth engine, and the original one when they first built it, it was it was at like 300 horsepower, and then with the emissions and uh, compression ratios, it got watered down all the way to 110 horsepower. Wow. Yeah. Do you, do you realize that car was either the same price or a little bit more than a Corvette at the time? Wow. That's like a double doom. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and they were they were pushing the Cosworth aspect of it, the fact that it was lower production. And they all came in just one color, right? The black with the gold trim, I believe. That's a po- that's a popular misconception. They actually were available in colors, but every time you see one, it's always black and gold. But I forgot what year they offered them in different colors, but I have never seen one in a, in a color. Other, other than, than black the black, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. It, had the, it had the engine turn dashboard like the trans. Yeah. Cams. It must have been a, must have been a 70s thing. But totally. It's a cool looking car. I it mean, is. I, I remember, you know, we had the, like I said, we had the 72 Camback wagon. And I remember at some point in the 70s, because uh, my dad would, would go and look at stuff for sale. <clears throat> And we looked at, I remember going with him once, look at a Cosworth that somebody had for sale. And he was afraid. He goes, well, I think somebody was probably racing this car, so I don't know if I want it. And he might have been right. Who knows? But <laughs> I remember I remember looking at, at the Cosworth. But, yeah, the Vega and the Pinto definitely defined a decade as far as, as small cars uh, were concerned. And, and Chevy learned a lot, too, I think, in the, in the 70s from those cars because um, – they learn from their mistakes, I guess, and finally I don't know in the how 80s. Much they learn, Mark. Well, yeah, because you look at some of the stuff in the 80s that we'll talk about you. next time. I, I, I gotta, I, I gotta disagree. With you. I don't know what they learned because they came out with the Chevette. Well, exactly, that. and that's on my list. And so, then the, and then the Chevy, and then the Chevy Citation. That's in the. So so I, I you're getting ahead of yourself here, Roger, because those are on my 80s <laughs> list. So, okay, <laughs> but so, fun so cars, the, though. Fun cars. Oh, the fun, yeah, fun. What do you got for that? I had the F-body uh, Camaro and Firebird, uh, Firebirds starting in 1970 oh, wow. all the way through um, basically the, the entire decade. We're all F-body, you know, the same design. Front and rear face has changed a little bit. Um, I just think that, you know, when you look at a Camaro or a Firebird, the F-body, you, you, you know what it is and you recognize it. Uh, obviously, I'm a little biased because we had a 76 Camaro as a kid, and then I've got my 75 Formula 400 Firebird, when those are both F-body cars, but uh, again, you can get them in a lot of different trims. You could get you know, the the um, Firebird, you could get an Esprit trim, which would be the more luxury uh, trim. You could get the Formula, you could get the Fire, uh, Trans Am, you could get a base model. Corv- uh, Camaros, you could get um, the Z28, you could get the uh, Standard, you could get uh, the LT or whatever the, the more... Sp- uh, luxury the model LT. was the what called a type 
It was called a Type LT. Type they LT. Had a, they, I think it was in 1974. They had a Type LT with the Z28 option. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They had both. They, like the hood. The hood said Z28 at the at the at the base of the hood or okay. the front of the hood, and then it had an emblem on the on the uh, seat pillar that said Type LT. Well, I got to tell you, um, from a look standpoint, this was a groundbreaking car. The original Lamborghini Countach. Oh, yeah, for sure. The one that they always said that, you know, every kid had a poster of it on his bedroom wall, him and Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, that car with the wedge style, all the supercars after 1970, I think the car came out in 71. Yeah. Every supercar after that was a wedge, Mm -hmm. period. That was... To me, when you think of the 1970s, with with that, it, it's um, that's that's my pick. And it, like you said, it's a poster car. It was like the original poster car. But for an engineering standpoint, you brought up the small cars. Well, my I have a small car on the list as well, and it's the uh, the original uh, Honda Civic. Although they call oh. it a CVCC. Well, that was I the mean, engine. Yeah, the 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 yeah. I can't remember what yeah, it stood it, for, but it was yeah, like the first. The original Civic, yeah, it, it's kind of like a uh, probably a much more reliable Mini Cooper because it was a front-wheel drive Japanese car, so it was better reliability, great gas mileage, and, and it, it took the world by storm. I mean, it was that, very, yeah, very good gas mileage. The CVCC was all about emissions, and they the the Japanese really got that down, and that without strangling performance necessarily, not without just you know. St- throwing on a catalytic converter that they actually engineered the engine to be um, emissions compliant from the start instead of making an, an engine emissions compliant by tacking on a bunch of power robbing accessories. They the door down with that car. They did. And the funny thing is when you see one of those early Honda Civics now, the car is tiny. They're it tiny. It is so small. It is. There, oh, you know, you just you, back then we didn't think it was that small, but you look at it now, and the thing is is almost as small as a Honda Six Hundred, which was the precursor to the Civic. So, if you remember the original uh, movie, A uh, Police Academy, uh, Bubba Smith took his driving test in that car. Okay, I don't re- he, I don't recall took, that, they, but they, they took the front seat out, and he sat in the back because <laughs> he was like six six. Yeah, it was. It, I just remember that car <laughs> in that movie. That's hilarious, but that's a good pick. That is a good one because, um, you know, another one that I just thought of too is just a, a genre, and this would would start with the very late seventies. But in the mid seventies, a, a lot of people forget that Mazda was mass marketing rotaries before the RX seven. They had the RX two, the RX three. You could get a sedan, you could get a wagon, you could get a pickup truck with a rotary engine in it at a dealer. Yeah, the pickup trucks are called Rupus. Rupus? <laughs> yeah, rotary pickup. Okay. And I remember, again, uh, in the 70s, I remember going with my dad to look at an RX2, I think it was. I think it was a wagon. RX2 or RX3, I can't remember, but I think it was a station wagon. And, again, the reliability wasn't quite there. Mazda was still getting the, the tip seal sorted out, but they were a lot better than, than the NSU uh, row 80s uh, back in the 60s and early 70s because Mazda is— You met my buddy Hector. He's got, uh, the RX, he's got an RX-7. He loves it. Yeah. Uh, they're, uh, I've learned, I've learned uh, enough about that car from, you know, from him, and you're right. The reliability thing is uh, you, you have to rev the engine up really high when you shut it off because it helps with the seals. Okay. Um, did you also know that they also those R, the RX2 and RX3s they also had they also had and I just learned this 
in the last couple of months. They had regular engines for those cars as well. That's got to be super rare because those cars are always associated with having rotaries. Which, but which model were you saying? The, 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 the body style that you're talking about, the RX2. RX3, oh, yeah, you could get, yeah, re- yeah. They, I think you had, had a regular, regular gas, yeah, yeah, regular um, uh, internal combustion engine. I think uh, you, they did have that, but you're right. They were, they were associated with the rotaries. Um, but As that well is, they should be. yeah, and you just never ever see any of those anywhere. I mean, because they all either just probably just crapped out or rusted out or whatever, and they're just really. I haven't looked for them online, but I, they've got to be just extremely hard to find. A couple of other '70s cars I wanted to bring up, Roger, was the uh, Chevy Blazer, the classic, um, one of the first kind of SUVs. Uh, from from GM, the classic. The uh, yeah, just a great looking car. I, I always liked that body style, and they actually had. Um, you probably don't remember this, but they had a Blazer Chalet, which was a factory. It was almost like a camper back that was integrated into the body of the Blazer, and it was uh, like a an RV. And it was called the Blazer Chalet. I've never the only, seen that. Oh, there was actually one online that. just recently. Yeah. And I remember those totally. They didn't make too many of them. They made a couple thousand of them. But look it up. Just Google Blazer Chalet and you'll <laughs> you'll, you'll have a blast from the past when you see I that. Look, I will look that um, up. The Jeeps actually started, I think, the CJ5s and stuff really started coming on in the 70s as well. Uh, more mainstream along with uh, some of the cool, like the International Scouts. when and the Bronco. Uh, yeah, and the Broncos. Obviously. Yeah, the Bronco, too. That's one from the 60s that we could have put in the 60s, but the Bronco yeah, definitely in the 70s. Over. Uh, it yeah, totally did. Over um, and being on the two more truck-oriented things, uh, conversion vans, obviously, is something that defined <laughs> a decade in the mid to late yeah, my 70s. Neighbor, my neighbor had one. He, he had one of the conversion vans, and he had the... Uh, put the bed in the bag, had the teardrop, had Kregers with I mean, shocks. talk had about a, classic. He had a fuzz buster on the dashboard with and, a hat over and a lot of, illegal. yeah, and a lot of the, um, the bodies had like, you know, graphic kits on them, you know, on the outside. Oh, yeah. And yeah, they were awesome. Whether it was a Ford or a Chevy or a, or a Dodge van. Yeah. Conversion vans. I mean, unbelievably huge market for those things. You could get them at, you can get them done. You could either buy a van and have it converted or the dealers were selling them as a, as a complete turnkey. Here's your conversion van, you know, they and it's a just, matchbox. Uh, they, a, they made a matchbox. Matchbox uh, Chevy van. It was just called Chevy van. It's probably pretty collectible. I would. Think it's too. funny too that you said the teardrop. I forgot about those. <laughs> those are so cool. Oh yeah, the louvers. Yeah, the yeah. louvers on the back yep. windows. You know, um, shag carpet. The, and... the, the shag carpet. You know, the CB. Oh, CB radio. So that was yep. real big back. That's then. a big ten four there, buddy. We got a convoy going. <laughs> <laughs> C.W. McCall. C.W. McCall. Um, but, yeah, so the conversion vans, I think, you know, just the, just as far as just a, a, you know, a disco era throwback. And then two more cars that, that, that definitely go into that whole 70s throwback thing would be the Gremlin and the Pacer, both from American Motors. The Gremlin, an Absolutely oddball iconic. car. Yeah, but iconic. I mean, the Gremlin, you could get a V8 in that thing. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Remember the Levi's edition with the Levi seats? Yeah, the denim interior. Yeah. Now, did you, did you know the original Pacer was supposed to have a rotary engine? I think I remember that somewhere along the line. But, again, the Pacer, for it being an oddball car, it was actually kind of, engineering-wise, it was kind of groundbreaking because it was a, a, a wider 
track. I remember the passenger door was something like three or four inches wider than the Longer, driver's door. Yeah, yeah for easier yeah. ingress and egress. And um, they made a wagon version of it. And yeah. I've, I saw some pacers have been going for like $30,000 recently, fully restored. I'm like, are you insane? But... People are getting them. Again, it's like, how often do you see a pacer? If you if you have a pacer, even in that sick kind of, they made this like sea green color pacer. If you have a pacer in that color or any pacer and you show up at a car show, you're going to get a lot of attention because you just don't see those cars anymore. They look here, like aquariums or gumball machines, right? Wasn't that what yeah. they called them? So here, here's, here's why $30,000 is not too much for a restored pacer because... It is significantly cheaper than a time machine because they haven't perfected that yet. <laughs> there you go. And another uh, oddity uh, from the uh, 70s, and we touched, Lou and I touched on this in our recent episode of the Car Guys Report, was the classic mid-70s GMC motorhome. Remember those big, that huge... Yeah, that had an Oldsmobile Tornado 455 engine. Yeah, and it was front-wheel front drive. drive. It yep, had dual wheel wheels in back, but they weren't duly side-by-side. Side. They were one in front of the other. So that allowed them to have this really flat, low floor inside, tons of space. They were fiberglass, so they were lightweight. They came in a bunch of, like, classic 70s kitchen colors, like avocado and and oh harvest gold. And, and they were just – but they're considered classics, and they're actually collectible now because – and, People love them. And they made a Hot Wheel. They made a Hot Wheel version of that. Did they? Wow, that's cool. I'll have to look for that because I always thought that. I yeah, remember orange. seeing them. I remember, it's yeah, orange. orange. That was another color they did, like the Brady Bunch Kitchen Orange, you know? Just, it, those are cool vehicles. They really were. And it's something, again, that you'll just never see because they were just such a, that was such a groundbreaking design. It didn't look like any other um RV ever before or since and that was just something that was very cool then a couple more uh, Roger that I wanted to um, touch on from the uh, 70s were just the whole genre of what we call land yachts the big Lincolns the big caddies the big Chryslers from the 70s these cars were pushing 225 230 inches in length the, the electric 225s and I think the one that really kind of epitomizes this was the classic like 76 Eldorado convertible 500 cubic inch factory engine front wheel drive uh, convertible I remember you could get it in like triple white I mean that car is just a it's a statement from the 70s as far as 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 American luxury was concerned Um, I could be I could be wrong but I think in 1976 they had already down the size of that engine. To Maybe 75, yeah, because I know when... yeah. But they did put the 500 in there, at least in like 75, 74, 75, but... Uh, yeah, 500, the 500 cubic inch engine, it, it, you can you can always tell that because on those cars, the emblem on the side said 8.2 Oh, yep, mm-hmm. It said that on the side. <laughs> yeah, that, that engine in 1970, that engine made... Um, some pathetic 550 foot pounds of torque. Okay, a lot of torque, but some pathetic horsepower rating because of all the emissions control on it, though, right? Well, yeah, in 71, the emissions really strangled, started strangling cars. But in 1970, I believe was it was 375. Oh, that's not bad. It had 550 up. pound-feet of torque, huh? 550 wow. foot-pounds of torque for 1970. Yeah, well, that's how much my Bentley had. My Bentley had about 500 or 550 
um, out of the V8 and that thing. And when you have that much torque, it's a fun experience because it's it's like locomotive in 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 um, in feeling because it's usually these cars are so big and heavy. I mean, the Bentley weighed fifty four hundred pounds. That I don't know what the wow. uh, I don't know what the Eldo topped out at, but it was probably close to five thousand. And you need that much torque to get that thing moving. And it doesn't exactly, exactly. it doesn't exactly throw you back in your seat, but it just kind of as James May on Top Gear would say, it kind of just gathers speed. <laughs> But you know that it's gathering speed, though. It's just like, you know, it's just, it's a neat situation or sensation. The show was over at about 4,000 RPM. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because funny that you say that because the Bentley that I had, the 94 Continental R, that would redline at like 4,500 because they they wanted to keep the engine in that torque range so the car would have, you know, enough power to get around because if it, yeah, they they didn't want people revving that thing higher than than 4,500, and that's the way they they tuned it. But um, two other cars, and these are kind of outliers maybe a little bit. The um, Oldsmobile Cutlass from the 70s just sold in boatload quantities, again, Considering how many millions they sold, you don't really see them anymore. But that was kind of a, again, attainable personal luxury vehicle, and that's when Oldsmobile is still doing well as a as a as a brand. I mean, they still sold. My mom and dad tons. bought a '77 Cutlass Supreme, brand new. See, it was uh, it was fifty five hundred dollars. Wow, what color? Uh, it was that uh, that burgundy with the burgundy velour interior. Oh wow. It was, it was, but it was also sprinkled with like a little bit of gold. And okay. It had a CV radio. <laughs> it had a C, and it had a CV radio. I love it. Was it a good car? Um, I, I was like seven years old, so I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and then again, I mean, I'm a little biased because I, you know, you know me and my my love for sobs. But I put this on the list because. In 78, 77, 78, Saab came out with their 99 Turbo, and it awesome was a car. it was a it was a two liter turbo engine. If my recollection is correct, cause I didn't I didn't do the exact uh, I didn't look it up, but this is my memory that I think it was only kicking out 135 horsepower, which was only like 15 more horsepower than the non turbo engine because the non turbo um, it was called the B engine. Was about 110, 150. Yeah, it was about 20 more horsepower because the B engine was about 110, 115 horsepower. So the what year was this? 78. Yeah, 70. Actually, so 70, very late 77, 78, early 78. You had a two liter engine only. Uh, an L48 Corvette, 1978, which is the base engine, made 180. And so 130. That's good for a four-cylinder. Four-cylinder, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why. Because in the in the day, 135 horsepower out of two liters, even with a turbo, yeah, and it was oh yeah. was considered good. And the reason I put that on the list is because sure, we we've had turbocharged factory production turbo cars before that back in the 60s we had the corvair we had the oldsmobile f85 um there's a probably a handful of others that i'm not thinking of right now but to me the saab 99 turbo ushered in the uh start of the reliable factory production turbo era because here was a car that was not a Porsche. It wasn't a high-performance car. It was a car that people like, you know, college professors or, you know, accountants would buy, and it had a turbo in it. And it was reliable enough and responsive enough to 
you know, cement the fact that, hey, this is what a turbo can do. It can give you better gas mileage, more performance, and it can be reliable. They don't have to go through a bunch of gymnastics to, oh, just, you know, back then they weren't water-cooled, so they would try to say, like, just make sure you idle the engine down for about 30 seconds before you turn it off. But did people really do that? Who knows? But... Um. Porsche introduced uh, the turbo in the 911 in 1975. They did exactly, but again, that's a Porsche. That's not a Saab. It's not a. Right. It's not a. You know, Saab was not considered a performance vehicle. Granted, Saab did not build a lot of cars. They only built at that point not even a hundred thousand cars a year worldwide, which is still small production. But the fact that they were cranking out a factory uh, reliable turbo engine, I think, meant a lot. And and. After that, it's like the floodgates open, and you start seeing turbos on everything in the 80s and 90s, and now they're just ubiquitous. Almost every car that has a four-cylinder engine these days has a turbocharger on it. Well, and- turbos nowadays, are they double. Uh, they actually, more, there's more emphasis on the, uh, the fuel economy just sure. because of the nature, the nature of how a turbocharger works. Exactly. Like you, have all, you have this unused, unspent gas. It's like, use it. So well, exactly, it's, it's because a, with the advent double. of computer control and everything they're able to do, yeah, that's why everyone is going to smaller turbocharge engines because of the efficiency and the gas mileage and the cafe standards and things like that. But I wanted to definitely put the put the ninety nine turbo on there because I remember my first time I, I rode in a in a it wasn't a ninety nine turbo it was a nine hundred turbo like an eighty three and it still had basically the same engine in it and that was before they brought out the H engine which was the sixteen valve turbo which was really hot that was like one hundred and sixty horsepower. But uh, even that 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 eight valve uh, turbo, I remember the first time I I had a ride in that, and I was I don't know I was in college I guess I was <clears throat> like a freshman or sophomore in college, and I thought, man, this thing is so fast, it's unbelievable. So well, it's just, I, we also should we also should be fair in interest of fairness. Uh, Nineteen seventy eight Buick Regal also had ex- yeah. There you go. Yeah, they did. Yeah, the Regal. Not we're not talking about like the, the GSXs the or the GNXs. Yeah, we're talking about the Regals, which were. Um, that's a rare car nowadays too, because you had it was almost like a sleeper because it was still it didn't have a bunch of doodads or gigaws on it. It was still just no, pretty much a regal. a regal sport. It was called a regal sport coupe, and uh, Lou had one on his channel. It had white walls and wire wheel hubcaps, but it had a tur- turbo. Yeah, like but that's here. the cool thing about it: white walls and <laughs> wire wheel covers. So. That's so we're done with the 70s, Roger. We got to talk a little bit here about a few other things and we'll be um, getting back to uh, talking about what's coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report. It'll be part two of cars that define a decade. But if you like what you're listening to here on the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, it's an OPI show. Just go to OPIShows.com. That's O-P-P-I-H Shows.com. Wherever you find your podcasts, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, Stitcher and tune in we're just everywhere you can search for radio misfits you can also search directly for the car guys report informed automotive and when you uh, do uh, listen to us please subscribe to us too you'll get an automatic push notification whenever there's new content which is once a week and also take a moment or two to rate us too we've got some nice ratings on uh, apple Podcasts, and certainly could uh, uh, use a couple more positive comments so if you uh, have a chance please rate us as well this is the car guys report informed automotive mark vernon along with uh roger rex road luke Hostable taking a couple of days off but uh roger just wanted to talk a little bit about um because we always talk about it on the show um 
Lou Costable's uh, YouTube channel called My Car Story with Lou. If you're not familiar with that as a listener, uh, what Lou has is a very cool uh, YouTube channel. Just uh, type in My Car Story with Lou. He's got about 1,500 car videos, got over 70,000 subscribers, so the man knows what he's doing. And you can see some of the coolest cars. Roger alluded to a couple of them throughout this uh, episode of stuff that Lewis covered on his uh, channel. And it's just a, a smattering of uh, what you'll find there because he always comes up with some of the coolest stuff. I know, Roger, you've liked some of the Corvettes that you've seen uh, on Lou's channel. Of course. And um, it's just some very cool stuff. So. Take a moment and uh, hop on over to YouTube and uh, check out My Car Story with Lou, with uh, Lou Costable. He's my regular co-host here on uh, the Car Guys Report, but we're giving Lou a couple of days off, and we've got Roger Rexrode along with us. And Well, Roger, coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report, it'll be part two of Cars That Define a Decade with you. You are our man in the field, Roger Rexrode. We uh, covered the 30s through the 70s in part one and part two. We'll start with the 80s on the next episode of the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive. Special thanks to you for listening. Certainly appreciate you taking the time to uh, take us along for the ride. Special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Opie is hippo, spelled backwards, O-P-P-I-H, shows.com. Distributed by Ed Silha with Radio Misfits. Great talk radio isn't dead, it just moved to a better place, and that would be radiomisfits.com. This OPI podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The proceeding was a presentation of OPI Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of OPI Productions. Tony, can you shut up? On this week's Free Kicks with Adam and Rick, big news, Adam. I'm giddy. The English Premier League is back. We've got games galore. I don't know how I'm going to work my schedule around all these games in the next 10 days, but we're looking forward to it. So lots of lots of matches to watch. And lots of fun to listen to here. We'll be giggling with glee on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Opie Show and Tony Lasano Podcast Free Kicks with Adam and Rick. Podcasting from Chicago, an Opie production for the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is Lasano and Friends. When the guests receive a questionnaire, there's a bunch of questions on there. One now has been added this season is... What pronoun would you like to be known as? Totally. I have, like, non-binary friends, and I'll find myself saying the word man, and I'm like, I'm not even using it as, like, a pronoun. Right. It's yeah. just a filler word. Right. And I know that it means so much more to them, so I'm trying to, like, force it out. Right. But it's right. so embedded. It's like a pronoun I've yeah. used yeah. since I was a yeah. kid. Yeah. And I still fall back on it just being like, oh, hey man, what's going on? You know what I mean? To anybody. Yeah. Woman, man, yeah. trans, anybody. Yeah. And I always feel terrible yeah. about it no matter who I'm talking to because it's a stupid thing to say. It's like a crutch. I've been like the South thing. And but I mean, the South thing would be better because you can just say y'all and then you're done. <laughs> that covers everybody. No, that's, I just use y'all. Maybe the South is more progressive than we yeah. are and we need to give them more sure. credit than they sure. get. Y'all is the best 
best gender neutral pronoun. <laughs> it really is. It hits the singular, yep. it hits the plural, plural yep. it yeah. hits everybody. Yep. <laughs> and it's got a little bit of character too, because it's like, howdy y'all, how you doing? Yeah. It's bipartisan, we're yeah. across the yeah. aisle. We have solved sexism <laughs> in this it. country. Now racisms. Maybe not the word y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Be sure to tell a friend about Losano and Friends, which is available online at radiomisfits.com. Follow Losano Friends on Twitter. Radiomisfits.com Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, it's part two of our look at cars that define a decade with our man in the field, Roger Rexroad. I'm Mark Vernon. Join me and our man in the field, Roger Rexroad, for part two of this very special episode of the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.